welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. As been the trend for the study guide on the Women of the War of the Roses, my voice is just sounding completely dead. That being said, I continue to be pretty sure that it is not the coronavirus. We haven't had that many cases in the state I'm currently in, especially in the area that I'm in. I know coronavirus spreads really quickly, and oftentimes you're asymptomatic for it, but I'm doing the best I can to socially distance, and I feel super healthy. Fingers crossed. Pretty sure I don't have it, and it's just my voice being my voice. Like, my throat doesn't hurt or anything. So before you start sending me messages being like, oh my goodness, Amelia, you sound terrible. Is your voice okay? Yes, it's fine. It's just doing its usual raspy thing. Also, before I dive into this episode, I do want to note that it is going to be a good bit shorter than most of my usual episodes. I don't want to make excuses for myself, but Elizabeth of York did die fairly young, and two, slightly more importantly, I am in the middle of exam week right now. In my case, that is writing several term papers. And slightly more importantly, I have the rough draft of my master's thesis due at the end of the week, which is exciting and slightly terrifying. If you want to know what my master's thesis is about, you can message me on Twitter or email me at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. So let's talk about the final woman I'll be talking about for the women of the War of the Roses, Elizabeth of York. Her study guide has some babies getting betrothed, a lot of hanging out in churches, and a seriously creepy uncle. Let's begin. Elizabeth of York was most likely born on February 11th, 1466, but primary sources put her birth year anywhere between 1465 and 1467, which is quite a range because, as we all hopefully know, women do not actually spend two years pregnant. However, the majority of sources I found gave her birth date as February 11th, 1466, so that is the date I'll be sticking with. Thank you very much. She was the oldest of Edward IV of England and Elizabeth Woodville's nine children, although Elizabeth Woodville did have two sons from her first marriage. And as a note, for convenience's sake, because Elizabeth of York and her mother shared a name, I will be referring to her mother as Elizabeth Woodville throughout the episode. Elizabeth's father was the King of England and the son of Richard the Duke of York, who had been one of the major leaders of the Yorkist faction during the War of the Roses. After Richard had died in 1461, Edward took over for the Yorkist faction and eventually became King of England. And if you want more details about that, I would suggest listening to the Cecily Neville and Margaret of Anjou episodes. Meanwhile, Elizabeth's mother, Elizabeth Woodville was the daughter of a vaguely noble family who had been on the opposite side of the War of the Roses before marrying Edward in 1464, and if you want more details on that story, you can listen to, surprise, surprise, the Elizabeth Woodville episode. 
from the get-go, Elizabeth's birth was a little bit controversial because of all the drama around her parents' marriage. Yes, Elizabeth was born more than nine months after they got married, but a lot of the English nobility didn't necessarily think that Elizabeth Woodville and Edward's marriage should be valid, so there was a question if Elizabeth and the rest of her siblings were legitimate or not. However, because she is the first child of the King of England, her birth is going to be surrounded with ceremony, including a huge baptism and christening at Westminster Abbey. At the baptism and christening, she is going to get official godparents, which will include both of her grandmothers and the Earl of Warwick, who is a very close advisor and friend to her father. However, the fact that the Earl of Warwick is her godfather will end up being pretty ironic, because in 1470, he will take part in a rebellion against Edward IV and will help restore Henry VI to the throne. During the confusion and danger of the rebellion, Elizabeth of Woodville will take Elizabeth of York and her younger sisters to Westminster Abbey to claim sanctuary and safety during the fighting. The claim of sanctuary works. During the time in Westminster Abbey, Elizabeth Woodville will give birth to another child, this time a son, which means that Edward IV has an heir to the throne. During her time in sanctuary in Westminster Abbey, Elizabeth of York, who's only a toddler at the time, will be briefly betrothed to the Duke of Bedford, a fairly high-ranking English nobleman, but nothing comes of the betrothal because, one, Elizabeth of York is still only an infant, and two, slightly more importantly, Bedford's father supports Warwick, who's kind of trying to murder Elizabeth's father, and that never is a good start to a relationship. While Elizabeth, her mother, and her sisters are stuck in Westminster, are stuck in Westminster Abbey in Sanctuary. Edward IV is in Burgundy trying to get European support to regain the throne of England. It ends up working, and by 1471, Edward IV is back on the throne, and Henry VI has mysteriously died while in royal custody, aka has been murdered. Once Edward is back on the throne, Elizabeth Woodville and Elizabeth of York are able to go back to the royal court. Once back in court, Elizabeth gets to begin her official education as the oldest child of the King of England. And she's going to be fantastically well-educated. She will, of course, be literate, although I really shouldn't say of course, because there were some kings and queens of England who almost certainly could not read and write. She also will learn math, French, possibly Spanish, although that's a little bit more up for debate, definitely religion, history, and for some reason, alchemy. It's unclear if the alchemy that Elizabeth of York learned is more like what we would consider modern-day chemistry, or if it was alchemy in the traditional quasi-witchcraft sort of way, either would make sense because Elizabeth's maternal grandmother, Jaquetta, did have a reputation for maybe being a witch. 
Beyond her fabulous, wide-ranging education, Elizabeth is generally going to grow up in luxury. The court of Edward and Elizabeth has a reputation for being amazing, ornate, tons of money, elaborate decorations, elaborate protocol, all that good stuff that you're expecting from a successful king and queen. And that's really going to play in to how Elizabeth is going to be treated as a child. For example, she's going to have multiple personal pages and literally has servants whose job it is to read stories aloud to her at dinner time. Despite this, she isn't going to spend that much time with either one of her parents, which was protocol for royal children in the 1400s. When Elizabeth is 11, she gets engaged for the second time, this time to the son of the King of France as part of a larger peace treaty between England and France, because as we've established throughout this series, trying to make peace with France is one of those things that the King of England would really like to do, but never quite manages to do. However, said peace treaty kind of falls apart in 1482 when France pulls out of the treaty, conveniently the same year that Elizabeth is supposed to marry said prince. While all this is going on, Elizabeth is growing up. She is relatively tall for the time. She'll reach an adult height of about five foot six, and she has a reputation for being incredibly beautiful with pale skin and golden blonde hair, which makes sense because both of her parents were considered to be very good looking, even if by now her father's looks have started to fade because of all of the hard partying that he was a fan of. But then in April 1483, Elizabeth's life changes when her father dies unexpectedly. Suddenly, Elizabeth's little brother, Edward, is king of England. He would have been Edward V, but something happens. He never quite becomes king. Instead, Elizabeth's uncle, Edward IV's brother, Richard, becomes regent of England. And just for clarity's sake, Elizabeth and her sisters and her mother didn't know Richard particularly well. He had been stationed up in the north doing various military things, but he had a pretty good reputation and they thought, great, we'll work with him until Edward V is ready to rule on his own. It's going to be fantastic. We won't have any of the Regency drama that brought down Henry VI. However, as soon as Richard comes to London, he accuses Elizabeth Woodville he accuses Elizabeth's half-brother and uncle from her mother's side of trying to seize power and arrests them. He's making it pretty clear that he doesn't want anyone who's not him to have power. And this raises some red flags to Elizabeth Woodville, and Elizabeth Woodville does what she does best whenever her children are in danger, and she takes all of the children, except for Edward V, who has to remain in London because he is king after all, and takes them to a church and claims sanctuary. However, this claim of sanctuary doesn't work quite as well as the claim of sanctuary she had made back in the 1470s. Richard is 
Richard manages to seize custody of her younger son, Richard of York, and takes both of the brothers to the Tower of London, and the two young brothers will never be seen again. Yes, that's right. I'm talking about the princes in the Tower. And I think it's hard to talk about the princes in the Tower without discussing the fact that there are some questions about what actually happened to them and who is responsible for their fate. Personally, I think, yes, they did die in the Tower of London. It would be lovely to think that they escaped and had a happy life, maybe in Scotland or Ireland or Belgium. There was a children's book I loved about a yeoman's daughter in the Tower who helped them get out, but seems pretty unlikely. Which then leads to the question, who actually killed the princes in the tower? Or not who, like, physically killed them, but who would have been responsible for the death of the princes in the tower? And the two most likely suspects are the future Richard III and the future Henry VII. And both men would have had really good reasons for wanting to get rid of Edward V and his younger brother. Obviously, if Richard III did it, it would allow him to consolidate his power as regent and then grab hold of the throne. If Henry VII, the future Henry Tudor, did it, it would make Richard look absolutely terrible and also would give Henry Tudor a really great claim to the throne. Honestly, I don't know who did it, obviously. I think historically, eyes have gone towards Richard because Shakespeare so demonized him in the play, but also he had the means and the motives. Henry Tudor was stuck in Brittany. He had the motives. He didn't really have the means. So for now, unless we have harder evidence that Henry Tudor was involved, I mean, you say Richard was the one who killed the princes in the tower. So that little digression of a historical mystery is over. Once the two princes are in custody, on June 22nd, 1483, Richard, acting as a regent of England, suddenly declares that every child that Elizabeth Woodville and Edward IV had had together were illegitimate because their marriage wasn't legally binding because Edward had been betrothed to someone else when they got him married, and a betrothal is basically the same as a marriage. And this suggests that suddenly Elizabeth of York is not a princess anymore, which must have been fun news for her. A few days later, Richard gets himself declared King of England, which makes quite a few people not so happy. Because he's now king, he's able to pull the rest of Elizabeth Woodville's children out from sanctuary and take custody of them. He says that he's only taking custody of them to ensure that the children have a stable income and so that he can arrange appropriate marriages for them. But taking custody of the kids means that he will be the one to have full control over them, not Elizabeth Woodville, which allows Richard III to further consolidate power. And Elizabeth Woodville is having none of this. Now that Richard is the new king and she has lost her children, Elizabeth Woodville starts working with her old friend, 
Margaret Beaufort, who has a pretty strong claim to the throne of England herself, to oust Richard. The plan is to have Elizabeth of York, who, now that her brothers may or may not be dead, theoretically has the strongest claim to the throne of England, marry Margaret's son, Henry Tudor, who has the strongest Lancaster claim to the throne of England, resuming the War of the Roses, potentially, to unite the families and push Richard out. If Elizabeth and Henry marry, we would unite two decently strong claims and end the War of the Roses once and for all, killing two birds with one nice rosy stone. And then in March 1485, Richard's wife, Anne Neville, dies at the age of 28. While Anne Neville's death is definitely sad, it wasn't necessarily unexpected because she had been suffering from poor health for quite some time. As soon as Anne dies, rumors start to spread around England that Richard wants to marry Elizabeth to shore up his claim to the throne and had been planning to marry her as soon as Anne Neville had started to get sick. Richard's plans to marry Elizabeth of York are extremely creepy of Richard because one, Elizabeth is 14 years younger than him and isn't even 18, and two, more importantly in my opinion, Elizabeth is his fucking niece. She's not even like once removed or a second cousin. We are talking literal incest here. Elizabeth is the daughter of his brother. It's like the most inbred you could get within the English family tree without literally marrying a sibling. It just Richard III, like, I want to be sympathetic to you, I really do, but this is so gross. When these rumors start going out, Richard does his best to publicly deny them, but no one's really buying it. Around all of this drama and rumors of a possible marriage, Elizabeth Woodville gets to work. She pulls Elizabeth out of London and is moved to safety in Northern England. And by safety, I mean out of the grasp of Richard and far away from any possible battles that might happen, which ends up being a really good thing because in August 1485, Henry Tudor enters England. We have the Battle of Bosworth Field, etc., etc. For more details on that, you can listen to the Margaret Beaufort study guide. Basically, Henry Tudor defeats Richard III and becomes King of England. And in my opinion, the fact that Henry Tudor is the one to become monarch is kind of sketchy. Because with Richard dead, technically, it's Elizabeth of York who has the best claim to the throne. And she's the one who should be monarch in her own right. Not Henry Tudor. But Henry Tudor is the one who claims the throne due to conquest. And instead of becoming monarch, Elizabeth marries Henry Tudor in January 1486, satisfying both the Yorks and the Tudors, and then will get coronated as Queen of England in November 1487 after she has conveniently given birth to a son and an heir, which definitely isn't questionable at all. As a symbol of the union between Elizabeth and Henry, we get the Tudor Rose, which literally is a mix of the old 
York, and Lancaster rose. Elizabeth is going to do a fantastic job as Henry's wife and queen in a traditional sense. She's really going to push those babies out. She will have seven children, four of whom are going to survive childhood. Arthur, Margaret, Henry, and Mary. Arthur is born literally nine months after the wedding. So yeah, Henry and Elizabeth are doing quite well as a couple. We can also track the fact that they're doing pretty well as a couple by the fact that the two tend to travel together, which wasn't very common among noble and royal couples during the 14 and 1500s. As Queen of England, Elizabeth isn't going to be as politically involved as her predecessors, and in my opinion, there are two main reasons for that. Number one, her mother-in-law, Margaret Beaufort, is still around and is very much holding on to political power. Thank you very much. And Elizabeth is going to be pregnant for most of her time as queen, which is going to slow her down quite a bit. Despite this, Elizabeth is going to be very involved in court, specifically the entertainment aspect of court life. She's going to be a very large patron of masquerades, plays, and music, and will spend quite a lot of money on entertainment, which should make us rethink the stereotype of Henry VII as this miserly figure. He doesn't really become obsessed with saving money until after Elizabeth's death. During the start of the marriage, for example, Elizabeth and Henry are going to undergo a fairly large building program. The two will either build or totally redesign some of the most famous palaces around London, including Windsor, Greenwich, and the Tower of London. But everything isn't going to be all Tudor roses. Apologies for the bad pun. Henry and Elizabeth are also going to face some attempts to overthrow the new regime. There are going to be two major attempts, the first of which, in 1487, is known as the Lambert Simnel Plot. Basically, supporters of Richard III want to stir up trouble against the new government. They find a 10-year-old boy named Lambert Simnel, who was probably the son of either a baker or a shoemaker, and first they try to get him to impersonate Elizabeth's younger and almost certainly dead brother Richard. That plan doesn't go very well, so they train him to pretend to be another possible claimant to the throne, Edward, the Earl of Warwick, who was the grandson of the Earl of Warwick, who had rebelled against Edward IV. Richard's old friends have Lambert Simnel join up with Richard III's nephew and a pretty large army from Burgundy. However, this army gets defeated by Henry VII's forces after a three-hour battle, and and Henry retains his hold on the throne, which is a big relief for everyone. However, Elizabeth's own mother may have been part of the plot. It's a little bit unclear, and Elizabeth Woodville ends up getting exiled from court and will live out the rest of her days in a convent. Meanwhile, Lambert Simnel isn't executed, but he does get sent to work in the royal kitchens for the rest of his life. Win-win for everyone except Elizabeth Woodville. A few years later, in 1490, another pretender to the throne pops up. His name is Perkin Warbeck, and he looks 
very similar to Elizabeth of York and just so happens to be the same age as Richard York, one of the princes in the tower. If he is really Richard, the prince in the tower, and he almost certainly was not, it would mean that he theoretically had a better claim to the throne than Henry. However, Perkin Warbeck almost certainly was not Richard, the prince in the tower. He almost certainly was born somewhere in modern-day Belgium to a customs collector. However, during his teen years, he fell in with a possible associate of Richard III, and by the end of 1490, had started to convince both wealthy Irish and wealthy French nobles who really disliked Henry Tudor that he was Richard of York. He was able to start raising money in an army against Henry from France, even though France had pinky sworn Henry Tudor that they were not going to do that. He then allied with Burgundy, who really did not like Henry Tudor for various reasons, and by 1494, it was real clear that Perkin Warbeck was going to invade England. Elizabeth and Henry had to prepare. So, they named their second son, Henry, the Duke of York, to make it clear that no, there is only one Duke of York, and Parkin Warbeck ain't it. In order to celebrate Henry being the Duke of York, they throw a massive giant party to show how wealthy and how many resources they are, and that sort of assuages a lot of people's fears. Perkin Warbeck does end up attempting to invade England in 1495. It's a huge failure, but he does manage to avoid being caught. Then in 1497, Perkin Warbeck attempts to invade again. This time, he and his forces do make it close enough to London that Elizabeth and the children have to leave the city in a nice little flashback to her childhood that I'm sure Elizabeth just loved. However, Perkin does end up getting captured and taken to London. It's unclear if Elizabeth ever met him and was ever able to confirm whether or not he was her brother before Perkin Warbeck died in 1499. After this failed pretender to the throne invasion, Henry Tudor's reign will stay pretty stable. Then in 1501, Elizabeth of York and Henry Tudor have something really exciting in their life. Their oldest son, Arthur, the Prince of Wales, gets married. And he doesn't get married to just anyone. Oh no. His bride is Catherine of Aragon, which is a huge coup for England, Elizabeth, and Henry. Because Catherine of Aragon is the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella. And Ferdinand and Isabella are probably the most powerful rulers in Spain, whereas England is kind of a second-rate power, a little bit of a backwater, but their son has married the daughter of the king and queen of Spain. This is amazing. However, tragically, Arthur dies only a few months after the wedding from sweating sickness. And as a note, we literally do not know what the sweating sickness was because it straight up vanished after the 1500s, but scientists think it was probably some sort of hantavirus. Maybe, like I said, we don't know. Arthur's death totally devastated Elizabeth of York. She had been really emotionally close 
to Arthur. She was really focused on organizing and running how he was raised, even if she didn't personally raise him, because queens didn't do nonsense like that. Also, remember, Arthur was the heir to the throne. He was super important to Elizabeth. She only got coronated as queen because he was born. After his death, Elizabeth goes into a deep state of mourning and may have started to suffer from some serious health problems, but that is a little unclear because hello 1500s medical records being more than a little lacking. Most modern-day scientists and historians think that she probably was suffering from some sort of anemia or iron deficiency. Her husband does do the best he can to get her to accept her son's death, but in Henry VII's case, doing the best he can is telling Elizabeth that it's okay, she can get pregnant again, and they'll just have more sons. And even if they don't have more sons, it's still okay, because at least they have one surviving son, the other Henry. And guess what? Elizabeth is going to get pregnant again. However, it's not necessarily an easy pregnancy, because she's distracted prepping for her older daughter Margaret's marriage to King James IV of Scotland. On February 2nd, 1503, Elizabeth gives birth to a daughter named Catherine. However, this time, Elizabeth doesn't recover from childbirth. She probably got some sort of infection, because welcome to 16th century medicine, everyone, and dies on February 11th, 1503, at the age of 37. Her daughter dies a week later. Elizabeth's death is completely devastating to Henry VII. He falls into deep mourning, and it seems like his personality definitely changed after his wife died, and it's after Elizabeth's death that we do start to see the more miserly, cold-hearted man version of Henry VII that history knows come into appearance. Elizabeth of York is buried in a huge ceremony at Westminster Abbey. After Henry VII died in 1509, her body was exhumed so the two could be buried together in one tomb, which is fairly sweet. So, for those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to full-on lectures, let's do a quick little recap. Elizabeth of York the oldest child of King Edward IV and his wife, Elizabeth Woodville, was most likely born in February 1466, but some sources are more iffy about that. Her parents' marriage was more than a little controversial, but Elizabeth was definitely born nine months after the marriage, so definitely legitimate. She did have a slightly rocky childhood due to a rebellion against her father in 1470, which meant that she, her mother, and her younger sisters briefly had to take sanctuary in Westminster Abbey while her father fled to Burgundy, but by 1471, when Elizabeth was about five years old, her father was back in was back on the throne, and Elizabeth was back in the royal court, getting a stellar education and growing up in luxury like a princess should. During her early teens, she was briefly engaged to the son of the King of France before the engagement fell apart for various complicated political reasons. 
Despite having a failed engagement, Elizabeth grew up to be a beautiful and relatively tall young woman before her father unexpectedly died in April 1483. With her father dead, the next king of England should have been her younger brother, Edward V. That did not happen. Her uncle Richard came down from the north and consolidated power in a efficient but extremely ruthless way, which included accusing Elizabeth's older half-brother and uncle of trying to seize power and arresting them for treason, and then seizing custody of Elizabeth's two brothers, taking them to the Tower of London, and making sure they were never seen again. Suddenly, her uncle Richard was King of England and was in charge of Elizabeth and her remaining sisters' lives. All very good and fun, and definitely not uncomfy. Elizabeth's mother, Elizabeth Woodville, was not having any of that, especially when Richard's wife, Anne, died, and Richard started to hint that maybe he wanted to marry Elizabeth, his fucking niece. No thank you. So Elizabeth Woodville made an unofficial alliance with Margaret Beaufort, the mother of one Henry Tudor, who had a decently strong claim to the throne in his own right, and they decided they would marry their children, unite the York and Lancaster families, and push Richard off the throne, and conveniently end the War of the Roses. That ended up happening in August 1485, when Henry Tudor defeated Richard at the Battle of Bosworth. Even though Elizabeth technically had the stronger claim to the throne, Henry Tudor was the manly man, and he was the one to be crowned King of England. He married Elizabeth soon after. She popped out a baby nine months later, and only after that was she coronated as queen. It does seem like Elizabeth and Henry had a strong, stable relationship. They had seven children, four of whom survived to adulthood, and it seems like they were pretty friendly. At least, they traveled a lot together, which is a good way of tracking noble and royal relationships. As queen, Elizabeth wasn't all that politically involved, mostly because she was pregnant a lot, but she was very interested in building and redesigning new palaces, as well as entertaining the royal court. However, there were two fairly major attempts to overthrow both Elizabeth and her husband, both of which involved random young men pretending to be either Elizabeth's younger and dead brother or another possible claimant to the throne. Both these plots, the Lambert Symbol plot, of 1487 and the Perkin Warbeck plot of the 1490s ended up failing and Henry and Elizabeth managed to stay on the throne. In 1501, Elizabeth and Henry had a huge win when their oldest son, Arthur the Prince of Wales, married Catherine of Aragon, which was a coup because England, which was kind of a second-rate power, got their prince to marry the daughter of the King and Queen of Spain. However, the marriage didn't last long before Arthur died. Elizabeth was devastated by Arthur's death, but she didn't stay sad for long because, would you look at that, she was pregnant again. However, this pregnancy would be Elizabeth's last. After giving birth, she ended up getting an infection and died in February 1503 at the age of 37. So, 
that is Elizabeth of York. I think, once again, she's frustrating because there's so much potential in her life. And she really should have been Queen of England, like, in her own right, not just Queen Consort. And, like, she just never really had the chance to prove herself. I think she's really interesting. Definitely hugely overlooked beyond, like, bad romance novels and TV adaptations of said novels. So, most of my research for this episode came from Susan Flancer's article about her, Joan Johnson Lewis's article on her for Thought Co., and Susan Abernathy's article about her. I also used two books, Amy License's book, Elizabeth of York, The Forgotten Tudor Queen, and Alison Weir's book, Elizabeth of York, A Tudor Queen and Her World. For a full bibliography and relevant images, you can go to the website sadgirlstudyguides.com. And as always, if you have questions, comments, concerns, or ideas for future study guides or tangent casts, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. Just a little note, I am going to be taking a small break mostly because of the coronavirus. I mean, not directly. I'm not sick or anything. But due to that, I am going to be heading home for a week or two. And that's just going to be like disrupting production a little bit. It's probably just going to be a one-week break. I'm going to do my best to release a standalone episode in the meantime. But honestly, like, I just don't know logistically if I'll be able to get to that. I will miss everyone. I am hoping to get an episode out. But like I said, I just don't know. But I do have a pretty big backlog of episodes. So if you really miss the sound of my raspy, beautiful voice... You can listen to episodes about the Stuart monarchy, romantic poets, the buildup to the American Civil War or Napoleon and his scandalous siblings. So, yeah, as always, if you want to financially support the study guide, you can do so by joining the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides. There are a bunch of different tiers, and if you join at the $5 level or more, you get to, you get access to the, the bi-weekly tangent casts where I talk about a person, place, or thing that I just couldn't fit into a normal study guide. If you join at $10 a month or more, you get to suggest a topic for a tangent cast, which is pretty cool, and I really do appreciate people who finish who do become patrons. It's awesome. I'm hugely appreciative. And you can reach me on social media to talk in the meantime. I'm available on Twitter at SadGirlStudyPod and on Instagram at SadGirlStudy. And as always, the best way to help the podcast grow is to tell a friend or subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And let me know how I'm doing. Rate or review or else I'll be sad. Thanks!